0: Well, it'd be good to pray, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're able to gather around, gather together and gather around your word, that you've given us your wisdom, your word from above. And I pray that you will take it and apply it to our lives, help us to encourage one another in it and put it into practice. And I pray that you'll help me to be clear and faithful. Amen. Uh, as that passage was read, as Jen read it out, did you feel the weight of the things that um, James was saying? James seems pretty fired up, I reckon. Uh, in 4 verse 4, he says that to be friends with the world is to be an adulterer uh, towards God. That's a very strong thing to say, isn't it? Who here is a friend friendly with the world? Adultery, ouch! That's a big thing to say, um, and we all struggle with the sins we do. James says, "Never mind the sins that you do commit." Four verse seventeen tells me that when I don't do something that I know is good, I'm also sinning. Now, the reason that that James is fired up in this passage, he uses a lot of strong language. He says that when we envy and get angry, we kill. It's all very strong is because it's in this passage that he really digs into double-mindedness. Just look at 4, um, 8 8 to 9. He says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Um, James wants us to admit... And Kevin just did a pretty good job of getting us to admit that we're double-minded. And last week, as we listened to Greg open up Chapter 3 about the tongue, that was a bit of an ouch chapter, wasn't it? Like, there was so much conversation about that. And, and the tongue is a great illustration of our double-mindedness. James says, uh, further up in Chapter 3, he says, Can salt water and fresh water come out of the same spring? Answer? No. But... Cursing and praise comes out of the one mouth. Where does our double tongue come from? It comes from our double mind, our double heart. So James is really quite challenging in this passage. But it's not all challenge and confrontation. Right in the middle of this hard-hitting passage is, I think, a most wonderful description of God. It's very short, very brief, but 4 verse 6. It says, But he, that is God, Gives us more grace. God gives us more grace. Now, it makes me think of artesian bores. If you've ever been out back, have you ever seen an artesian bore? You drive through dry, parched land for, for hours, if not days, and then you come across an artesian bore, and out of this bore is just flowing life giving, refreshing, encouraging water, just flowing up bubbling up, going down board drains and and watering the country around it. Doesn't matter what time of the day, what kind of season it is, it's just doing it day and night, 24-7. That's like God with his grace. You go back to God, you will always find more grace. God is overflowing with grace. So in this this big passage, James brings those two things together. On the one hand, our double-mindedness. And he wants us to sit under the weight of it and think about it. But he also brings, he points us to God's grace. So it's hard, but it's very encouraging in the end. And he helps us understand, uh, helps us know, learn how to deal with our double-mindedness. Now, if you're into outlines, I've got four points. Um, first, uh, The first three points are just Examples of the battlegrounds of double-mindedness. Two wisdoms, two friendships, two diaries. Okay? And then he brings us back to God, one God. My take on James is that he's giving us wisdom to follow Jesus and his wisdom in a phrase in this passage is that we need to turn back and keep turning back to God because with God there's always more grace. So let's think about the two wisdoms in the passage. Look at verse 13. He begins by asking us a question. Who is wise and understanding among you? Now, we probably all like to think, oh, oh, I I, I am. But James, James isn't looking for a verbal answer. No, in fact, he tells us that the answer to that question is actually found in our lives. There are two kinds of wisdom. There is the wisdom from above, the wisdom from God. It's good wisdom. And it's demonstrated in our life. Verse 13 true wisdom is shown by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. So that's godly wisdom, wisdom from above. Then there's earthly wisdom. It's also um, demonstrated by its nature and what it produces. Its nature, verse 14, bitter envy, selfish ambition. Verse 15 such wisdom does not come down from heaven but is earthly, unspiritual. Demonic. Earthly wisdom comes from envy and selfish ambition and verse 16 produces disorder and every kind of evil practice. Couldn't be more starkly different, could they? God's wisdom and earthly wisdom. Look at verse 17. This is uh, the wisdom from God. It is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, and sincere. And James says, who wise you is who among you is wise? Which kind of wise are you? Those of us who married could ask our wives or husbands, what a, which wise am I, hun? <laughs> um, you might ask your friends. What's evidenced in your life? Well, when we think about this, we have to admit that we're double-minded. Um, but and I guess what demonstrates our double-mindedness is, even though we know the wisdom of the world is bad, it's not good for us. It's actually attractive to us. Uh, on Tuesday evening, I watched a special on Peter Brock. Did anyone else watch it? No one at church. Of, no one at six thirty. Do you know who Peter Brock is? He's one of the greatest Australian racing drivers ever. Uh, I'm a bit of a petrol head, so anyway. Um, Peter Brock, what an amazing talent, what an amazing driver, but one of the greatest exponents of the wisdom of the world. Envious of success at any price. Uh, Selfishness lived almost as an art form. One of his wives said, with Peter, everything, everything is about his racing. And what was the result? Disorder, every kind of evil practice. He left in his wake a trail of relational destruction. He was killed in a motoring accident. But the interesting thing is, though, is that um, everyone excused Peter Brock's behaviour. Why? Because he was a success. Uh, He was a great exponent of the wisdom of the world. Now, as I watched that show, I was kind of offended by much of what I saw, but my double-mindedness kicked in. I love motorsport. I'm a bit of a petrolhead, as I said. So part of me was very attracted. Um, I envy his driving ability. I would just love a taste of some of the, the success he had and what it gave him. I was double-minded as I watched that show. Now, James knows that with every Christian, this is true, and there's an internal battle. We've all been given wisdom from above, God's word, the gospel. It's rooted in our hearts. 118 says that God has chosen to give us new birth, a new life through his word of truth. In 121, it says that that word is implanted in us and growing in us. You know, we love that. It's good. But there's this other side of us, isn't there? There's this rotten, sinful nature of ours. It's envious. It wants what is not ours. We're double-minded. The earthly wisdom appeals to our earthly desires and the heavenly wisdom appeals to our new life in Christ. And it's a battle, isn't it? And the Bible says, James says, you'll never be free of it. You'll never be free of the tension, but James will show us how we can ensure that the wisdom from above will grow stronger and the wisdom of the world will grow weaker. So two wisdoms. What about two friendships? <clears throat> um, did you hear that friendship with the world and friendship with God? They're the two friendships. And the word here for friendship It's actually a really strong friendship. It comes from the word filio, which is one of the loves. Um, This is not casual friendship, but strong, deep, kind of brotherly friendship. It's love. It's love. And verse 4 makes that immediately obvious. Just look at verse 4 with me. It says, You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. These two friendships or loves, I think, come from the two wisdoms. The wisdom from God fosters in us friendship with God because it's good, but the friendship with the world um, fosters with us, uh, is driven by the wisdom of the world and its effects are terrible. Uh, just follow with me verses 1 to 3 and just keep your eye out for the earthly wisdom that's driving this. 4 verse 1, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but you do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, the word for pleasure and desire—it's the same word. It's the word from which we get hedonism, which is a lifestyle of pleasure, fulfilling our desires. And that is Australia to a T, isn't it? Australia is the land of the long weekend. Like we, we work so we can have pleasure. Um, we, we envy. Other people's pleasure, good food, great holidays, better houses. You know, we want to get that izuzu, whatever it is, so that we can go our own way. So we covet. And verse 3 says that we drag God into it by asking him to fulfil our covetous prayers. Rico Tice um, he says we turn God into a divine waiter. He's there to deliver our daydreams. We put our prayer order in via prayer. We might give up a decent we might give a decent tip in the collection plate. We treat God as if he's there to give us what we want and we get furious with him if he doesn't deliver. We are drawn by these two friendships. One is with God, the other is with the world. And James says, don't fool yourself. How serious this is. Friendship with the world doesn't sound too bad, but adultery is shocking, isn't it? Um, I'm married to Robin, and when I married Robin, I was asked, Will you take Robin to be your wife? Will you give her the honour due to her as your wife? And forsaking all others, love and protect her as long as you both shall live. And I said, I will. And the fact is that it won't work if I don't. If I don't exclusively love and honour her. Imagine one day I come home and say, oh, honey, I met this really nice lady at the supermarket and I was wondering if you minded if I spent every second night over at her place. Like, it's shocking, isn't it? God says, that's what you do with me when you fall in love with something in the world and so you turn your back on me. verse 5, James says that God jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. And this is imagery out of the Old Testament. Uh, Prophet after prophet tells the people of Israel that um, you are like unfaithful wives with many lovers. You see, if, if you're a Christian, God has given you a new life. His spirit dwells in you. Your, life find, your new life finds its origins in God's love. God so loved the world, so loved you, that he gave his son for you. So when you turn away from God towards another, it creates enmity towards God. Our double-mindedness makes us think we can get away with it, that we can have it both ways, but we can't. It just won't work. Can I just get you to stop and think? Just stop and think, where is your friendship with the world actually trumping your friendship with God? see some of you writing down, it. grab a pen, just write it down. You know, In this area of my life, this is where the friendship of the world is dragging me away from God. Write it down. And then just write beside it, adultery. It's very sobering, isn't it? Uh, Two friendships, two loves. The third uh, example of our double-mindedness is what I've called two diaries. Um, By that I mean um, how we plan our lives. You know, we fill in our diaries to plan our future, and this is in four verses, thirteen to seventeen. Now, we all make plans, we we set goals, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's this saying, I think it's "To to, uh, to fail to plan is to plan to fail. Makes sense? We all make plans, nothing wrong with that. No problem with that. But James does have a problem with the attitude that drives our planning. The two different wisdoms that shape our plans... Wisdom of the world, wisdom of God, will lead to two very different outcomes. Follow the wisdom of the world, um, we will ignore our human frailty. Uh, James says that, don't you know that your life is a mist? We, we don't think that, do we? Um, but we're not here for very long. We are like the, you know, the, the steam in the shower. You turn the exhaust fan on and it's gone. And he says that when we plan ahead, um, we, we, we don't even know what tomorrow's going to bring. So we ignore God's sovereignty. But if we plan by the wisdom of God, um, it brings about a very different outcome. Um, and he helps us think about it. Think about all this, I think, in verse 17. Just look at verse 17. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So it's bound to happen, I think, that when you follow your plans to do this or that, your love of the goal that you're pursuing... Sometimes you'll have a head, your, your plans will have a head-on collision with God's wisdom for you. And so you make, you make decisions. And if you're following the wisdom of the world, you'll, um, you'll get too busy to go to church. You'll cut back or even stop giving to church because you need to invest your money in this project. Uh, it's easy to compromise family life. It's easy to compromise your ethics. Why? Because you're wanting to achieve your goals. But if your life is shaped by the wisdom of God, when your plans have a head-on collision with God's plans, with your love for God, what you actually do is alter your plans because you want to do the right thing by God, because you love, God's, you love God more than your plans. If you look at chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, it's like this massive warning for all who will not follow God's wisdom. Because you follow the wisdom of the world, um, make your plans, you'll very likely do okay. Might be rich, be very successful. But James says, your wealth will rot and come to nothing. And the cries of those you have treated poorly in your envy and selfishness will reach all the way to God, the judge, the Lord Almighty. So he says, um, if if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Use that to help you think about your two plans. So, James, having kind of teased out our double-mindedness, his purpose is not to leave us feeling bad and hopeless. No, his purpose is to help us turn to God because God is the one who has more grace. He's the only source of true wisdom and he is waiting for you with grace. Grace. Uh, Because he's the only source of true wisdom, because he's the judge, because he gives more grace, James says that we must turn to God and keep turning to God in humility. Just look back at uh, 4 verse 6. It says that God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. He opposes the proud. He will stop us in our path if we're proud. But gives grace to the humble. Verse 10 says that God will lift us up. So, what's the answer to our double-mindedness? What do we do about it? It's simple, James says. You just humble yourself before you turn back to God in humility. That's the answer. And in verses seven to eight, he actually fleshes out what that means. Like, what does it mean to humble yourself? Well, just follow with me. Um, verse 7, he kind of gives us he gives us four. Four kind of he unpacks it in four lines, so what 's it mean to humble yourself? submit yourself and to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, come near to God, he will come near to you, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. I just want to unpack those things. James says, you deal with your double mindedness by humbling yourself, and that means submitting to God submitting means recognising God's rule over us. It's easy for us to forget, I think, that the Christian life is a life of submission to Jesus Christ. Because he is our saviour, that's what Jesus means. Christ, he is our king. Jesus says we're to deny ourselves. Take up our cross daily and follow him. But denying ourselves and submitting to God is hard because... It's saying no to those desires that are really strong within us. Submission means acknowledging your double-mindedness and turning towards God and saying, Lord, your will be done, your wisdom, not mine. But to do that, we must know God's will, mustn't we? We must know God's word. We must know God's wisdom. James has a bit to say about that. Back in chapter 1, um, we had it recalled for us tonight. Be quick to listen, 1 verse 19. Do not merely listen to the word, do what it says, 1 verse 22. Look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continue in it, 1 verse 25. Humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you, One twenty-one. You see, we need to know God's word, his will, if we're going to submit to it. And so that must be part of the habit of our Christian life, to humbly and prayerfully listen to what God says and put it into practice. And that implanted word will grow in us and we will find that we become more fruitful for God and less fruitful for the world. But James says humbling yourself also means resisting the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you devil's a pretty creepy character he kind of works with half-truths and suggestive doubt but James says you need to be afraid afraid of him because if you resist him he will flee from you how do you resist the devil? well think back to Genesis 3 Um, it tells us that the fall of mankind came about because Satan's lies invoked in Adam and Eve an envy to be like God Um, the selfish thought that life would be better for them if they didn't listen to God. What happened is that they didn't resist him, but they should have because they knew God's will, they knew God's word. They should have resisted him, but they didn't. And the rest is history. What will it look like for you to resist the devil? Can I... Get you to stop and think for, about that for a moment. You know, what temptation, what internal desire is it that is particularly besetting you at the moment? What are you facing? Just, again, think about it, identify it, and write it down. I want you to write it down and think about it because I want to ask you, do you know what God says about that? Do you know what, God, what God's will for you is about that? If you don't, maybe you need to ask someone. But do you know? Because that's how you resist the devil. You stand on God's truth. You stand in God's truth. Remember, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Satan came and tempted him and Jesus said, the scripture says, and Satan left him. James says that if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 8 says, Come near to God and he will come near to you. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Of, you know, we hesitantly turn to God and guess what? He's coming near to us. It makes me think of, you know, over the years my four kids have got into some point where they just don't know what to do. They come and say, Dad, I need some advice. Can you help me? And whenever they draw near to me, I draw near to them. Because I love them and I want to help them out. That's what God's like. See, humility means coming to God and saying, I don't know what to do. I'm powerless. I can't fix this. I need help. And God is waiting for us to call. 1 verse 5, James 1, verse 5 says, If you lack wisdom, ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. So you see, we've got to grow in the habit of coming to God humbly in prayer daily. God is your father. You are his child. Peter says in his letter that his eyes are on us, his ears are attentive to our prayers. So draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But when you think about it, we get to the next thing that James says. Um, If we turn to God, it kind of necessitates turning away from sin, doesn't it? When you turn towards God to come near to him, you're turning your back on the world, your back on the devil. It's called repentance. And look at what James says. I think it's really helpful. Wash your hands, verse 8. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. See, there's two things there. There's the hand and the heart. The hand is what you do. The heart is your attitude. See, this is change of behaviour and change of mindset. This is full repentance. When you change your mind about something, that's one thing, but if you're in such a bad habit that just autopilot takes you back into the sin that you've been involved with for years, it doesn't help if you don't change your habit, does it? On the other hand, you can change your habits, but it doesn't mean that you've changed your heart. James says it must be both, both hands and heart, actions and attitudes, what you think and what you do. Just as a real faith always produces actions, so real repentance always produces change. And James wants us to take this seriously. This is no kind of incidental you know, couple of sentences. It's real, it's right. It must be taken seriously. Look at verse 9. James says that when our double-mindedness drags us off course into sin, it should cause us to grieve and mourn and wail. It should change our laughter to mourning and our joy to gloom. But James doesn't leave us in gloom. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. It's great, isn't it? You'll find more grace with God. When you think about it, why would anyone not turn back and keep turning back to a God who always, always gives more grace? All this reminds me of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. And it's very familiar. If you don't know it, uh, when you get home, grab your Bible, Luke chapter 15, you'll find it there. It's a story of a young man who does everything he can to reject and offend his father. And then he follows the wisdom of the world and things go from bad to worse and he ends up living with pigs and eating their food. And he he comes to his senses and he goes, you know what? My servants, my father's servants have it better than I do. I'll go back to my father and ask him if I can just become a servant. So he goes back and Jesus says his father sees him coming. You know, the son is drawing near to God and the father draws near to him. The son drops to his knees and says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. What's the father do? He lifts him up. He clothes him in his best robe. He, puts, uh, he re- reinstates him by putting the family ring back on his finger. And he holds a banquet in celebration of his returned son. It's a great picture of us turning back to God. And we find more grace. That's what God wants us to do. That's what James wants us to do. We will never escape our double-mindedness, but the grace of God will never be exhausted. We turn back to God um, by humbling ourselves in the way James said. Well, I'm going to pray. There's a song that has a line, Oh, the mercy of God, the glory of grace, that he chose to redeem us, to forgive and restore. Heavenly Father, we thank you that that's what you're like and we admit what we're like. Please help us, give us the wisdom to humble ourselves and to come back to you. And please, Lord, help us to change the habits of our life to change our heart so that we keep on coming back to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.